You are listening to Down Home. I read this quote from Margaret Atwood once. She said, a word after a word after a word is power. She's so right. The written word is powerful. Our next guest on the Down Home podcast has chosen to wield his power to tackle oppression and racism. He's also wielded his power to tell stories of love and community. I'm talking about none other than Dr. George Elliott Clark. Dr. Clark is an award-winning author and poet who served as Canada's Parliamentary Poet Laureate in 2016-2017. He's also been named to the Order of Canada. And he's Scotian. Join me and Jay as we have a conversation with Dr. Clark as he shares his Scotian story. Welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience from two black men. I am Derek Wise, and as always, we have Jay Jones. What's happening? And our very special guest this week is George Elliott Clark. Mr. Clark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, It's always wonderful to talk about down home, back home, back east, uh, the black (laughs) maritimes, the black North Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, awesome. That's great. Forgot to ask you, um, are you okay, are you okay with Mr. Clark or should I call you Professor Clark? Or <laughs> it's okay, you know, Dr. Clark, Professor Clark, but George is fine for today. Sure. Cool. Okay. All right. Um, so you were born near Three Mile Plains and grew up in Halifax. Can you give us a little bit of your Scotian story? Sure. Well, of course, it goes back like as as it does for many of us uh, into the uh, into the uh, 19th century uh, in terms of the fact that my mom's family, uh, my late mother, Geraldine Clark, born Geraldine Johnson, uh, her ancestors arrived in Nova Scotia on the South Shore around Shelburne uh, during the War of 1812. And they were, of course, African-Americans transported to Nova Scotia uh, during that conflict. But along with them came Cherokee. So mm-hmm. I am, in fact, part Cherokee, and I call myself Afro-Métis. And I'm going to say right now, I don't care if anybody takes offense at that. Too bad, because those that's my heritage. And right. I own it, and I'm proud of it. Um, and and uh, But uh, after about 20 years on the South Shore, my maternal ancestors moved to uh, Hans County, moved to Windsor Plains area. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was born in Green Street, uh, Newport Station, uh, and and I ended up being born in Windsor Town, a little racist town. I'll say that right away too. It's a little racist town. <laughs> yeah, you know, Scotian towns are racist, mm-hmm. and parts of Halifax as well. But we can talk more about that on my father's side. It also, I also have roots uh, in the 19th century, and and also probably I can't prove it, but probably uh, with Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq mm-hmm. heritage as well. But to answer the question. Uh, my father's maternal uh, uh, line came from Virginia. Uh, right. I am, in fact, the great-grandson of William Andrew White, Captain Reverend Dr. William Andrew White, uh, Chaplain Number 2, Construction Battalion, etc., etc., etc. But he was born the son of, of, of former slaves in 1874 in King and Queen County, Virginia. 
And he ended up coming to uh, Nova Scotia uh, in the late 19th century, where he became the third graduate from Acadia University, a third black right. graduate from Acadia University. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and he married um, um, a woman who family lore says, again, I can't prove this, but according to family scuttlebutt chat gossip talk, she grew up in a wigwam. Oh, so really? I leave it to listeners to determine whether or not she may have been Mi'kmaq or not. I, mm -hmm. I can't prove it, but that's what the family uh, uh, lore uh, history says. Um, and and so if that's in fact true, then I probably have some Mi'kmaq heritage too. So fast forward to my birth and growing up in uh, as of 1960, uh, being born in Windsor and then growing up in Halifax. I can say that uh, as a boy, as a child, I have two brothers as well who were born, Bryant, born in 61, my brother mm -hmm. Bill, born in 62, mm -hmm. both of them born in Halifax, but I was born in, in Windsor, and and um, uh, I didn't grow up there, I grew up in Halifax, but I'm very proud of the fact that I have those rural roots, so that uh, Three Mile Plains, uh, oh, Five yeah. Mile Plains, Windsor mm -hmm. Plains, Newport yeah. Station, Green Street. Yeah. Yeah. heritage yeah yeah uh, because that's that's my up home that's my mm -hmm. down home when i go down home i'm going to go up home i go to windsor plains right because that's yeah. that's the family seat so to yeah. speak in terms of yeah. the johnson clan right and and so my mom was a johnson but so i so um i'm growing up in halifax but going back to windsor a lot as a boy i enjoyed it uh because mm -hmm. for one thing my grandparents like many uh black folks in the countryside had all kinds of great food Oh yeah, uh, you know we had city food, we That's had right. Kool Aid and stuff like that, no problem. But you going up home, going up there, you had the molasses on the bread, you, yes. you had the oh, my fresh vegetables over the ground, the lettuce and the carrots and and, and so on, and butter. Oh yeah, I was seven when I first had butter because we, you know, my parents were my father to be really precise was kind of like uh, my well I shouldn't say miserly but he was careful about the pennies. Careful right. with the money. <laughs> so for us, he thought, margarine, you guys can handle the margarine. That's all. <laughs> so I remember I was seven when my grandmother up home, uh, Nanny Johnson, uh, gave me a, a, I still remember the moment. She gave me a sandwich, butter on it. Yeah. With, with chicken. With yeah. Pepper on the chicken, right? And so I'm biting into this sandwich. And I'm enjoying the flavor. I'm enjoying the taste. And I said to my grandmother, I said, Nanny, what is this? She said butter. I was floored. <laughs> I thought I thought I'd been eating butter all along. <laughs> I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, so yeah. after that, there was no going back to you know, we had to still stick with the margarine, but oh my golly. Mm. I had to I had to prefer the butter. And yeah. and uh and also my grandparents, my grandfather had a little store, a little canteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the home, and so there was always ice cream and cheese yeah. and and mm -hmm. potato chips and hickory flavored yeah. uh, 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 potato uh, uh, sticks and and whatnot and yeah. cracker jack and so it was like candy up the yin yang and also my cousin Scoop <laughs> uh, was a was a was a soul child so toys. I mean, his, his, he had a room that was nothing but toys. <laughs> so going up to Windsor was like going to Disneyland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. Except that there was also like the pear trees and the apple yeah. trees and the blackberries mm. and the raspberries and the oh, yeah. and the strawberries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so to make long story short, as a kid, 
even though I was growing up in Halifax, and I loved the city because the city had all, all the things the city has. You had the yeah, playgrounds, yeah, you had the cinemas, yeah. you had the museums, and 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 all that, uh, and the sports, uh, and and so on. So I loved the city too, but um, so I just felt rich as a boy. I felt rich no matter what the sociologists and economists yeah. said about my family being lower working class or part of the struggling classes or whatever. I felt rich. Because I had that access to the countryside, mm-hmm. yeah, and and so I never felt poor. You know, there was always um, uh, food and toys, and and Christmas was a delight. Yeah, and and I actually I actually felt a little bit embarrassed as a boy because I thought that my family was so well off, and I think we probably were in comparison with many others right. who I went to school with and who I played with and and so on. Um, and so I had a, I, weirdly, I grew up with a sense of noblesse oblige that yeah. I had to share with others because I was better off than, mm-hmm. than any of my friends and school chums were. But that sense of, of wealth came from um, having that access to the countryside. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for definitely. sure. So uh, where, in, where in Halifax did you grow up? What neighborhood? It was uh, it was uh, uh, the north end, of course, central uh, north end. Uh, I grew up on um, our, our first home in the city itself was on uh, Canard Street. Okay, a home that's that was right across from the Commons. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and uh, so on Canard, right across from the Commons, we were there for a couple of years. And then we moved to the house that I mainly lived in during my boyhood. Which was uh, I don't even mind telling you the address. It's still there. I'm glad it's still there. Two three five seven, twenty three fifty seven Maynard Street. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. And and, uh, and of course that was uh, a street where a lot of the black men on the street worked for the railway. My yeah, father worked right. for the railway. Yeah, he right. wasn't a porter. Bill Clark, my dad, was not a porter, but he worked for the railway. Mm-hmm. They worked for the railway for most of his working life for the yeah. railway, mm-hmm. right? And then by a lot of other guys on the street. Actually, a lot of the black men on the street were like next door neighbor, gentleman across the street, gentleman down the street from us. And there was a, a, another guy down the street from us who was retired. They were all railway porters or ex-railway porters. Right? Mm-hmm. So so the street itself, Mainer Street itself, had a, had a middle class vibe. Yeah. Again, yeah. you know, if Stats Canada wanted to go back and check the records in the early 1960s or mid-1960s, say, no, you are all poor people as far as we care. Yeah. As, as far, far as, as they can Up here in Ottawa, we're going to yeah. call you poor yeah. for yeah. tax purposes or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. But the sense that we had on the street itself was that we were middle class. Right. We had homes. Yeah. And and we had rooms over our heads. We had food on the table. We had clothes yeah. on our back. And we had new clothes two or three yeah. times a year. Yeah. yeah. So we felt that we were okay. And we, also we had uh, a number of of the of the families had cars and we had TVs and and so on. So again, we felt that, or at least I, I thought as a boy that we were pretty well off. Yeah. And the other thing was working for the railway. My dad was able to supplement his income because. Uh, there were often damaged goods. Now, this was actually a bad thing for us, my brothers. Now, I'm going to speak to my brothers, Bill and Brian. And we, all, we all suffered this. See, again, as I pointed out already, my father, Bill Clark, was a little bit careful about the money. Yeah. Uh, and for good reasons, but nevertheless, he was. And so uh, there were often damaged goods coming in on the rail, on the trains, right? Mm-hmm. So. He would bring home boxes of Captain Crunch cereal. Oh, golly. <laughs> you know, like, when you first have a little bit of that Captain Crunch, it's okay, right? But yeah. we got to eat Captain Crunch day in, day out. <laughs> 
almost 24 <laughs> 7. It's a bit much. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. And so we had to suffer through boxes and boxes of cat criteria. And he would get angry. We said, you know, maybe we could try something else. And no, you're <laughs> trying to eat what I put on the table. You know what's good for you? Yeah. And we know there was no argument with him. But the worst thing was when he came, we came back with a, a box of, of, of bottled lemonade. I forget what that lemonade was called, but I can tell you this. It didn't taste anything like lemonade. <laughs> my brothers and I, and we would say to our father, it tastes like the smell of paint. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It, was, yeah. it tasted like linoleum. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I've ever tasted linoleum. But, <laughs> but anyway, that was his That was his sense of economizing. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, of course. Uh, and he also would work more than one job, too. So another reason why we never felt that we suffered any kind of lack or want of anything. Yeah. And the other railway families, black railway families on, on the street, all seem to be uh, doing pretty well. Mm. But there was a drawback, and I'll say that right away very quickly. I think that my father, like a lot of the other uh, men who worked for the railway, I'm not going to say they were all like this, but uh, he had to suffer through a lot of, of being called out of his name, Mm. Uh, by railway customers, patrons, passengers, as well as his bosses. Mm-hmm. He had to suffer with having to be humble and, yeah. and play genteel and mm-hmm. be kind all the time to yeah. everybody and courteous. Yeah. And so when he came home often, unfortunately, I got I to gotta tell the truth, often when he came home, he was seething with yeah. resentment, yeah. seething with anger. Mm-hmm. And he took it out on us mm-hmm. and my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And that was the big downside of what was otherwise a happy childhood. I don't mind saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do know uh, that other railway families, black railway families, had similar situations where uh, the dad was had a lot of bottled up anger and mm-hmm. and took it out at home or took it out in the bottle, yeah. drinking too much or or uh, at home drinking too much or, mm-hmm. or getting into um, you know just being yeah. a, a domestic tyrant. Of yeah, course, my yeah. my grandfather. Well, first off, we my family, the Chandlers, grew up on Creighton Street, so very close to your family. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd have to agree. My grandfather, um, he was a stationary engineer, so he worked in boiler rooms and he worked uh, at Dell. And so he's always around, you know, the ethnic my, my the ethnic majority and around a lot around a, a lot of white people. And when he'd come home. He was a, a painfully quiet man, mm-hmm. painfully, painfully. I didn't think he liked me. <laughs> that's how quiet he was a painfully yeah. quiet man. Uh-huh. And that's mm-hmm. how, and that's how it manifests itself in him. Like he, he literally would just sit in the corner and he wouldn't he say anything to anybody. Suppressed it all. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, that's, that is such a, uh, a welcome insight uh, in terms of your grandfather's attitude and and perspective and be, and behavior at, at home and you know we're here talking about the down home experience and and it is good and bad it's 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 a little bit of both or it's a lot of both actually mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and i think it's really good that that we address and confront all of the ways in which our elders and ancestors and i'm an elder now myself mm-hmm. had to cope with being oppressed and something. Yes. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't put it, we shouldn't paint pretty pictures about it. They no. were oppressed people. Yeah. Yes, they, they were, were oppressed. Yeah. They were. Yeah. And yeah. this is and so they reacted. 
in yes. lots of different ways, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, sometimes both. Mm-hmm. But they had to have some way of, of dealing with, with the situation that we were that they were in. Yeah. And at the same time, the only other things they could do was leave. And a lot mm. of them did leave. Yeah. But where were they going to go? They could go to Montreal, they could go to Toronto, they could go down to Boston States. Yeah. And it was still going to be the same, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Except yeah. you'd have more community, more black people around you yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to be supportive and to help out. Yeah. But when I think about that too, I'm also thinking about about Nova Scotia. This is one of the great things about growing up there. Yes, we are an oppressed people. Yes, we were a suppressed people. But there was a lot of strength in the community. A lot yeah. of strength. And I yeah. think there still is a lot of strength in the community. And that was another way that helped people get through and cope. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the uh, drastically negative circumstances we sometimes or they sometimes have to confront, um, and and to to make the food dollar stretch, uh, to put on the house parties, uh, to take a lot of solace in the church, in religion, mm-hmm. in, in general, mm-hmm. um, and to enjoy all those boxing matches where we could see white guys get pummeled. To pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our last episode was actually about George Dixon. So yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's so true about um, you know, when I think about my my grandfather too, he was he was a quiet, sort of stoic man, and he, you know, fought in the first world war in the 106th battalion. And uh I often wonder if you know there might have been some PTSD that he took home and then because there was a lot of racial sort of things going on there at that time you know and he was he was also so young and uh you you do carry it with you i mean it's still happening today you know yeah well i'm thinking of rocky jones and i'm thinking of his autobiography where he talks about jeremiah jones Mm -hmm. yeah and and how jeremiah jones was a was a great war war hero. He took out a a German machine gun nest single-handedly. Took him out single-handedly, right? Yeah. But the government of Canada didn't get around to recognizing his heroism until 2011. 2011. Yeah. 2011. Almost a century went by before the government of Canada gave him his medals posthumously. Yeah. And the worst thing is Jeremiah Jones died mysteriously, uh, possibly a robbery. Really? Uh, possibly yeah. because, because uh, despite the fact he was a war hero, uh, he was part of a community called Jolly Town, which was wiped over the map, wiped off the map 1940s uh, due to road construction, actually paved over the grave graveyard of Jolly Town oh, wow. near Churro, right? I just mm-hmm. found out about this last year. But mm-hmm. Jeremiah Jones is one of the elders of Jollytown who said, thou shalt not run your highway through my community. Mm-hmm. And he put up resistance to the Department of Highways, Nova Scotia. And then suddenly, mysteriously, he's dead, drowned yeah. in, in Halifax. It was down by the waterfront. I, I, my, yeah. my, uh, Jeremiah Jones is my, my great-grandfather, Sidney Jones. They were, uh, they were, I think Jeremiah Jones was his great uncle, I believe. And they were yeah. in the actually in the same battalion, but he was so much older. And I was just in Halifax about a month ago, and my aunt Jean told me the, you know, the crazy circumstances around his death, and still yeah. kind of unsolved, oh. right? Yeah. Oh, she yeah. she told you that story, Jay? I didn't yeah. Know. yeah, 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 yeah. One of the points that has come home to me very clearly, and I'm you know I'm still in a sense dealing with the first question you asked me about being born in Windsor, growing up in Halifax. Uh, one of the great interesting, intriguing facts about Black Nova Scotia, which I also call Africadia, 
is that we all have family names that are connected to a particular part of the geography of the province. Yes, very much we so. We all do. Yeah. Whether it's part of Halifax or whether it is Halifax or whether, you know, I think it's really interesting that we can say the Downies, North Preston. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can say the Hamiltons, Beachville. We can say the Grays and the Johnsons and the States. That's Hans County. That's Windsor Plains. And the fact is, you go down the line, and even I think about May Ann Francis, the Honorable May Ann Francis, you can say Whitney Pierre. Mm -hmm. Like all, all the historical black families in Nova Scotia have a connection to a particular part of geography. Mm -hmm. and, and that means that, that we are thoroughly uh, Scotian uh, because we are connected. In fact, I, like, I, I got to point this out. African Nova Scotia is has the greatest number of land holding, actual land holding, rural land holding black people in Canada. Yes. Think mm -hmm. about that, folks, for a second. Yeah. Think about mm -hmm. that. The largest number of black people who actually own rural property in all of Canada are in Nova Scotia. Yeah, right. Now those properties may not be um uh uh, good enough to farm because that was deliberate policy to not give our ancestors land that they could farm, but to give them land that they could not farm. That was official colonial policy. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, that land gave us a sense of identity, land and identity that is very special and very specific. The only other black people in Canada who can who can put forward similar uh, claims of identification with land are the folks in Essex County, Ontario, southwestern Ontario, around Amherstburg, uh, mm -hmm. Windsor, uh, Chatham, uh, and, and London, Ontario, and, and so on. Then also the Battlefords in Saskatchewan, yeah. uh, where a lot of African Americans settled uh, 100 plus years ago. Amber Valley, Alberta. Yeah. And, and um, uh, yeah, up around Priceville, also in Ontario, because that was the terminus of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's it. That's it. Yeah. And, and everybody else is, like, basically urban. Yeah. And you got an apartment or you got a condo or you got a house where you're, part, where you're a minority. Yeah. Alongside everybody else. Mm -hmm. And without that landed sense, that, that real grounded sense yeah. of, of identity. That actually makes... Uh the story of Africville even more uh, impactful because, you know, literally you're talking about uh, ripping away generational wealth yeah. oh my God, from, yeah. from a generation of uh, Black Canadians. Mm -hmm. Like the story oh, yes. of, of, of Jollyville, as you said, and of Africville, that literally it's ripping away generational wealth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and I remember um, hearing Irving uh, Carvery, Irving Carvery talk about uh, what it was like. This is in the the Africville documentary for 1991, uh, talking about how you know, as Africvillers, uh, they could have looked. The younger generation could have looked forward to having a home in Africville without having to get a mortgage uh, and and having to go into great debt and so on. So the loss of that of that ability to basically hand down a residence or hand down land. Uh, from from um, one generation to the next was it, that meant exactly that disrupting uh, uh, the possibility of wealth transference from one generation to the next. The other thing too that we got to remember about Africville, and it's still true today, Africville was the only green space in the extreme north end of Halifax, the only mm -hmm. green space because that space had always been zoned for industrial activity. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So Africville, as we know, historically was surrounded by factories, infectious disease hospital, the slaughterhouse, NS slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so and so that green space, that inhabited space was the only green space, agricultural space in that part of the city. And it still is as Seaview Memorial Park. It still is the only green space in that part of Halifax. Yeah. So there were environmental uh uh, environmental damage done, and not just uh, by placing the dump right next door to to that historic uh, community, but also in terms of, of denying the saliency of that green space. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in terms of in terms of all of Halifax, uh, and the other thing I got to mention too about Africville is that Africville is the only working class, or if you want to say poor, that's okay with me too, but. Definitely the only working class community on the Halifax Peninsula that had direct access to the water. Yeah. People want to think about that mm-hmm. because the only other parts of Halifax where there's direct access to the water for recreation, fishing, boating, swimming, and so on, Northwest Arm. Yeah, right. And that's yeah. all rich people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was another stunning fact about Africville is that the Africvillers could go and boat, could go mm-hmm. and fish, not just mention do the baptisms. Yeah, yeah, baptisms yeah. in the water uh, <laughs> and, and swimming. So they actually, no matter how working class stats Canada would want to call them, they had an upper middle class lifestyle because they were right on the water. Yeah, yeah. talk yeah. about get your lobster. Talk about get your mackerel. Mm-hmm. Crying aloud, your fried yeah. eel too. Yeah, crying aloud. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of economic, uh, sociological, economic damage done by the city of Halifax's racist decision mm-hmm. to demolish that that village and and move people into slum housing and public yeah. housing yeah. Uh, in downtown Halifax or in Mulgrave Park. And mm-hmm. the other problem with, with with that is is that is that uh, and of course it makes sense that they would deny the saliency of black community. But I like to, re- to remind everybody that there's a lot of power or there was a lot of power in the possibility of someone mailing a letter, let's say from London, England, they're writing a letter and they mail a letter to Africville, Nova Scotia, Dominion of Canada. Mm. The power of that address, black space being recognized internationally, or when Duke Ellington came to uh, Halifax, a state in Africville, or Joe Lewis came to Halifax, a state in mm-hmm. Africville, and so on. So you have this part to think about, um, um, uh, the great uh, leader of the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Marcus oh, Garvey himself. Marcus Garvey, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, and yes, and, yes. and given his great speech on on free, having to free ourselves from mental slavery, that Bob yes. Marley, of course, turned into um, um, redemption uh, song. Oh my golly, his great song, redemption song. Yeah. Redemption song. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The um, uh, it's unfortunate, like a, a that the you know, to, to pretty up a little bit, the lack of municipal investment that's gone on in Halifax in communities of, of, uh, of ethnic minority communities. It's gone on to this day in the North End. Yeah. Uh, that lack of uh, municipal investment. And it's in, in my mind, it's actually led to the gentrification of the North End. Mm-hmm. It, it has. Yeah. It has. Because the fundamental fact of Halifax, as with Nova Scotia, it's a peninsula. 
there, uh, not only is God not making any more land, it's impossible to make any more land <laughs> <laughs> on, on the peninsula, which means that every single inch of the peninsula is potentially profit profitable for somebody, mm-hmm. for some speculator, real estate agents, et cetera, et cetera, and whatever influence they have on, on the municipal council, which may in fact probably be very, very powerful influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that there are efforts underway right now uh, to protect and save residences connected with uh, prominent uh, um, African Nova Scotians, Haligonians. And uh, for instance, Dr. Clement Ligore, the first black uh, physician in Nova Scotia, who was also a hero of the Halifax explosion. The Halifax explosion, mm-hmm. yes. And, and I know that, that uh, um, folks are very interested in having his property, his former property in the North End being designated with a heritage um, uh, designation mm-hmm. uh, and you know I'm, I'm not going to speak here out of a sense of, of, of being a relative but I do think that there should be some attention paid to protecting um, the residents of uh, the late great Reverend Captain Dr. William Andrew White on Bel Air Terrace mm-hmm. also North in Halifax and I can think of many other residences as well that, that should be preserved and, and thought of as important to uh, Halifax and important to Nova Scotia's uh, black heritage. Mm-hmm. And that's something else I've been thinking about a lot and trying to say to people all the time. Instead of some Nova Scotians disparaging and ruining and hating the fact that there's a black historical black population, what they need to realize is that is the benefit of the black population Nova Scotia, of black Nova Scotia, historical black Nova Scotia, which is to say that because of our presence, Nova Scotia itself has links to Africa. Mm-hmm. Nova Scotia has links to Bermuda. Nova Scotia, of course, has links to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, um, especially New England, but also Dixie, naturally, of course, mm-hmm. and also to the Caribbean, specifically to Barbados, Trinidad, and Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And if I was running the Nova Scotia government, I would be trying to, you want to talk about tourism? I would be really building those links, not and Sierra Leone as well. Yeah. Right. We should be building those links because our presence gives Nova Scotia those connections, mm-hmm. and only foolish people would not think about trying to build on that and yeah. work with that and attract a lot more investment, and also and also to make it possible for us to have, for instance, exchange programs. Why not exchange programs between Dalhousie and Howard University in Washington? Oh yeah. Historical Black University. Yeah. Why not have connections with, and we already do have connections, although not necessarily racialized in a positive way, connections with the college in Bermuda, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and and where so many of us have so many connections because Bermuda was the capital of the South Atlantic capital of the Royal Navy, and Halifax was the North Atlantic capital of the Royal mm-hmm. Navy. Right. So that's mm-hmm. why um, we have those we have those connections. Not to mention again the connections with the, with the Caribbean, um, and and uh, and of course African America. Yeah, now, I, I think it's a it's it's a it's a sin and a shame that nobody thought to invite. I'm going to guess nobody thought in the provincial government to invite uh, His Excellency Barack Obama to come come home to Halifax. Yeah, crying aloud. I mm. mean, it was okay to have Bill Clinton drop in. It was okay <laughs> to have actually it wasn't okay to have George W. Bush drop yeah. in. Drop in. That was not okay. I don't know who said that was okay. It was not okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they should have had 
They should have had President Obama drop in. For yeah, you wonder, you wonder if he was You wonder if he was ever invited. I don't think he was, was he? I don't think I, so. I, I, yeah. I doubt it. They should have put all their best feet forward. They should have, yeah. and, and had him come through because of that. Because of the great connection that we have as as being partially African American descended. Yeah, I mean, Nova Scotia is good enough for Marcus Garvey. It's good enough for Barack Obama, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> for sure, for yeah, sure. True, true. Now, um, I have to ask you, uh, what actually went into your decision to um, to come up to Ontario and leave Nova Scotia? Oh, look, uh, Derek, Mister Wise, it's the, always the same old, same old, same old, right? Um, and and everybody can guess what I mean by that economic opportunity uh career opportunity and and i'll put i'll i'll, I'll tell you the story very quickly as, as soon as i as fast as quickly as i can hmm. um i first left nova scotia in 79 i was 19 uh to go to the university of waterloo because rocky jones told me to go there he said oh, really? i didn't know where it was <laughs> i had no idea where it was he said you got to go to university of waterloo why so you can study black history with jim walker right oh. uh, the great historian of yes. African Canadian history, so you got to go. You got to go to Waterloo, and then Joan Jones uh, gave me a job so I could actually compile a little bit of cash in order to be able to go to Waterloo. Um, so I did that. I was there for for five years. Um, it took me four years to get my degree, which is the usual amount of time. But I also uh, spent a year as the as the um, uh, university uh, student newspaper editor. Okay. And so then I came back to Nova Scotia in '85. And and I got a job uh, after a little while of not of being jobless, of being unemployed. I did find a job uh, with the Black United Front as right. a community development okay. worker, social worker, basically down in Annapolis mm -hmm. Valley, which was great because uh, it really helped me a lot as a writer and as a poet to be back in in Black Nova Scotia. But now with a a new understanding of how special our language is, African mm -hmm. Nova Scotian vernacular English, which is a distinct form of, of Black English or Ebonics, you want to call it that? Mm. African Nova Scotia has a distinctive form of Ebonics that actually gets studied by by um, linguists. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and and uh, as a distinct form of Black English. So it was really great to be to encounter our speech and try to work with it as a poet. It was wonderful. Uh, and I also um, while I was working for the Black United Front, I started a community newspaper called The Rap. Uh, and Mark Diddy was my advertising uh, guy, and I was the editor, and we put out this eight-page newspaper once a month, 7,000 wow. circulation, covering the North End of Halifax and Black Nova Scotia in general. And and we actually broke a couple, even though my newspaper came out only once a month, we still broke a couple of stories nationally cool. uh, that, got, that got national attention. And so Howard McCurdy, who was Canada's second black member of parliament, Dr. Howard McCurdy, also Canada's first black tenured professor, microbiologist, mm -hmm. and at this point a member of parliament, called me and asked me to go to work with him in Ottawa to be his community relations uh, liaison, right? And so <laughs> I was making 12 G a year doing the newspaper and as a graduate student at Dalhousie University. So I had, I had 12 G coming in. I was feeling good. I was feeling good. I had 12 G. Yeah. That was nice. It was all right. You know, I was, I was surviving, you yeah. know, riding Halifax Metro all the time. Not a problem. <laughs> you know, taking the ferry every now and then. Okay. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't complaining. Uh, and so when Howard hired me, 
he said, look, I can only pay you 24G. Well, I, I had to pretend that that was not quite enough, right? But you know, I was only, I was only playing. So when I heard 24G, I thought, oh my golly, I just doubled my income. Yeah. But away I went to, to Ottawa to work with him, and it was great. Uh, I don't mind saying Howard was practically a second father to me. My parents got divorced when I was uh, officially divorced when I was 14. But the marriage broke apart when I was 12. Mm-hmm. And so there I am going through adolescence and, and basically without having my father uh, present. And, and um, you know, I, I think I survived. I think I made it through. But working with Howard, I, I, I again, had a very strong paternal presence. Even though I was 27 years old, I went to work with him or for him. And I, and I worked for him for four years. Mm-hmm. But he was Dr. Howard McCurdy. Right. He, yeah, and there I was, GEC with an honors BA, and GEC with an MA from Dalhousie, and I thought, geez, you know, a PhD might not be a bad thing. And my mother came to my graduation at Dalhousie, and we saw all the PhD candidates. They were walking across the stage. They had the black velvet cats with the gold tassels hanging mm-hmm. down. And my mom was sitting next to me. She said, Georgia, you got to get one of those. You gotta get a doctor. She got one of those black velvet cats, and I thought, "Oh, okay, well, all right, I'm on it." So uh, I I started uh, my PhD at Queens, 1990, and Howard actually supported me in my decision to go to Queens to get to get a doctorate because in English, because he said, "You got okay. I'm gonna let you go to Queens." But you got to keep working for me. I want to give you one day off a week so you can go to take your courses at Queens. And it was Tuesday because he said Tuesday is a slow news day. So right. you can go to Queens and study on, on, on Tuesday. So that's what I did for the first year. I still worked for Howard and I was studying at Queens. Everybody at Queens called me the ghost because they never saw me. I came in to do my courses on Tuesday and then I left and, and was back to Ottawa working on the Hill. So yeah. that was Parliament Hill. So that was great. Um, I wrote my dissertation on Black American poetry and white Canadian poetry. Black mm-hmm. American and white Canadian poetry. And everybody in Canada was like, going, how can you do that? How can you compare Black Americans and white Canadians? And my answer was easy. You're both minorities. You think like minorities. You do. Mm-hmm. White Canadians think like they're minorities because they are in comparison with the United States. They're a minority right. culture. And they yeah. act like it all the yeah. time. Yeah. So that's that was the thrust of my dissertation, my research. When I when I uh, finished my dissertation, which I wrote in one month, I wrote it in one month wow. without wow. any support uh, from Queen's University, mm-hmm. almost no support from Queen's University, uh, which I think was because of, of my chair, who um, tended to behave in ways that many of us students of color thought was racist. Mm-hmm. I'm not calling mm-hmm. him a racist. I'm saying that we interpreted some of his behavior as being racist. So for all those legal scholars out there, I have not accused him of anything. I'm saying that we, students of color, more than more than just me, thought that some of his behavior bordered on, on ways or actions that could be considered, by us at least, racialist. Mm-hmm. So having said that, um, um, I, can, I can say that he was someone who was not very impressed by my scholarship. Uh, but that was okay because Duke University was the number one uh, department of English in the world at the time in the 1990s. They were thrilled by my dissertation, thrilled mm-hmm. by my research, thought it was really interesting, and so hired me 
boom, straight on oh, the wow. grad school. Everybody wow. at Queens was shocked. Shocked. Yeah. How did how did that how did that guy we call the ghost? How did he get the how did he get that number one job at the number one department of English in the world? How did that happen? Yeah. Well, it's because I'm I'm black Nova Scotian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You just you just walked through some up. walls. That's all. <laughs> oh yeah. Look, the night before I went down to the night before my dissertation defense, Sylvia Hamilton called me and told me that the ancestors were with me. Mm-hmm. It was very mm-hmm. important. You know, when you talk about that community spirit, community strength, um, you know, we're cousins, but it was so nice of her to call me and, and give me that, you know, a little bit of backup yeah, uh, yeah, right yeah. before I was, I was facing this grueling examination on my, about my scholarship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I ended up going down to, going down to Duke to teach, uh, 94 to 99. And while I was there, I began to explore and talk about and write about, and I was the first one to do it. Black Canadian literature, African mm-hmm. Canadian literature. Right. Um, and, and so that brought me to the attention of the University of Toronto, along with many other universities. Mm-hmm. And and so um, um, the University of Toronto came calling in 1999 and said, we want you to come here. We want you to teach African Canadian literature in Canada. We want you to awesome. teach it at Canada's largest university, biggest university, greatest yeah. university, number 17 in the whole world. In the whole world. Very <laughs> true. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so I ended up back I ended up back in Canada in 1999 teaching wow. as I still am at the University of Toronto. But I still have my three quarters of an acre of three mile plains. I still do. <laughs> hey that's I'm good. That's important. That. Yeah that's, that's important. the greatest kind of currency, you know what I mean? Land. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On a high plateau, from the one down below to the future of the funk, getting lost in the flow. Contact with the spot, my gex. Now it's time to flex with the force from the soul, reaching all aspects, getting deep. No time to sleep as you reach your next phase, laying it all on the line. New trail start to blaze, it's a fire inside. A brand new path, breaking down the sum to one. Feeling free, I just laugh with the joy of a beat boy, just kicking it live. A connection so. Join us next week for the second part of our conversation with Dr. Clark as he talks about his artistic influences and the importance of critical thought. To see what you find, revolution starts with the evolution of the mind. It's a rhythm of circumference that rotates around to the surface with a purpose. Breaking new ground. Breaking new ground. Flying high. Wanna keep living my life. The song. Breaking new ground from the breakdown. I wanna live my life.